Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. So today we have the honor of having a very special guest. Absolutely, absolutely thrilled. Thrilled. And we want to give a shout out to our friend Sharina for bringing us another fabulous guest. So on September 11th, 2001, two planes hijacked by Islamic extremists flew into the World Trade Center, destroying the two buildings and taking nearly 3,000 lives. As most people fled to safety, police and firefighters rushed to the scene. As the saying went in New York, as we ran out, the first responders were running in and running into almost certain death. 403 first responders, police and firefighters lost their lives that day. Most people remember that day with horrifying clarity. Our guest today, Will Jimeno, was a 33-year-old rookie with the Port Authority Police. Shortly after the first tower was hit, Jimeno, along with Sergeant John McLaughlin and other Port Authority police, were called down to the World Trade Center for a search and rescue. At the time, it was thought that a commuter plane had accidentally crashed into the North Tower. As Jimeno and McLaughlin and three other officers entered the North Tower from the mall, the South Tower began to fall. The five men ran towards the elevator shaft. Two of the officers were killed immediately. Jimeno, McLaughlin, and another officer, Dominic Pizzullo, were trapped under the rubble of the fallen buildings. Pizzullo later died trying to help Jimeno free himself. John McLaughlin and Will Jimeno are two of the few that made it out alive. In Will's inspiring book, Sunrise Through the Darkness, a survivor's account of learning to live again beyond 9-11, he tells their story. It is also a story that's told in the 2006 Oliver Stone movie, World Trade Center, which is based on the events of that day. And Will, welcome. We are very honored. I loved your book. I was crying at many points in that book. It's beautifully written. You take the reader right there. And can you kind of take us back to that awful day? First of all, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for my good friend, Sharina, for connecting me with you uh, ladies. My whole goal has always been to just continue doing the job, even though I'm not wearing the uniform. You know, I always say I bleed blue. I still continue to serve my community. And this book was something that was been in the making for a long time, mostly because of me doing speaking engagements and getting feedback from people, what I was talking about and what I opened up about with my 
not only what happened that day, my survival, but also my recovery of both physically and mentally has helped them. And I started realizing that there was something that could help other people. And so the book really came from people that I have spoken to that their feedback and how it helped them. So I ended up putting it on paper with a lot of help from my co-author, Dr. Michael Motes and University Professors Press, who really believed in us because they're pretty much a academic book company. They deal with psychology, but they took a risk on us, which I appreciate because the feedback has been immense from all walks of life that I never really thought would affect them. Just a quick example, doctor reached out to us how three of her patients have benefited from the book because they deal with issues after birth. So it's something that's real and things that I just never thought it would reach out to. But going back to September 11th, I actually was living a dream. My whole life, all I wanted to do was become a police officer. And after six long years of trying in New Jersey, that's where I I live. Grew up and raised in Hackensack, 12 miles outside New York City. Watched the skyline of New York City growing up. I ended up getting on the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey. For those that don't know what the Port Authority Police is, we are the major transportation facility police department. We have all the three major airports in New York and New Jersey, the bridges, the tunnels, the bus terminal, Midtown Manhattan, where I work, the World Trade Center, the PATH trains, Port Newark. So we're police officers of both the state of New York and New Jersey. And the World Trade Center was owned and operated by the Port Authority Police, and we have a command center there. But on September 11th, I woke up that morning working day tours at the bus terminal. I literally had about nine months on the job. Like I said, I was living a dream. I was married to my beautiful wife, Allison. I had a four-year-old little girl named Bianca. My wife was seven months pregnant on that day with our second little girl. And I had just bought my first home six weeks prior to the attack. So life was really good. And I literally skipped down the stairs, jumped in my vehicle. At the time, I was living in Clifton, New Jersey, about 20 minutes outside New York City. And I would drive in through the Lincoln Tunnel to the bus terminal. For me, it was never work. You know, it was just net work. It was my dream job. Went inside, went downstairs. And something I share with everybody, which I think people can identify with, is since September 11th, I've been blessed to meet so many people, from dignitaries to celebrities to just great fellow Americans. And the one thing I notice is that we never outgrow high school. No matter what happens, it's always like <laughs> And went downstairs to the locker room. It was like high school. You know, here we are, men and women tasked to protect our facilities within New York City and New Jersey, and people still goofing around like high school. I always laugh at that, but we put on our uniforms, went upstairs to what's called roll call. That's where we're given our assignments. And my post that day was 35, which was on the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue. Went out to post. It was a normal day. At the bus terminal in Midtown Manhattan, which is the largest bus terminal in the country, and believe it or not, the busiest in the world, in the morning and the afternoons, we have what's called a rush. So thousands of people are coming into the city in the mornings and thousands of people are leaving in the afternoon. But in the morning, people coming in from New Jersey, Connecticut, upstate New York, other parts of Manhattan and Long Island. And it's just thousands of people coming through. So our job is to be positioned throughout both buildings in Midtown Manhattan to make sure that we're there for safety, information. God forbid there's a medical emergency. So I was actually had my back to 8th Avenue. I was leaning up against a taxi pole. And I was looking at the doorways as people were coming out of the building. And I was standing under an awning. And just outside that awning on 42nd 8th Avenue, Sergeant Ross and two other officers, Pat McNerney and Sanchez, were standing out there. And I happened to glance over and look at them. And that's when I saw Sergeant Ross kind of pointing at something. And he was going over his head. And he was following with his finger, which I thought was weird. Couldn't really hear anything. I looked over to the intersection of 42nd 8th Avenue. 
And for those who have never been in New York City, an intersection in New York City is pretty large. But the whole intersection just went dark for a split second, like a shadow came over. I didn't really think of it. And I went back to doing my job and looking at the doors, making sure everybody was safe. A couple minutes later, our radios crackled and the police desk, which is located on 9th Avenue, said to us, A40, all officers A40, which is the code for everybody come back to the police desk. So I started walking across 41st Street and over toward uh, Post 5, where I met up with Dominic Pizzullo. Dominic was a classmate of mine. We had just graduated the January 19th of 2001 at the World Trade Center at the Marriott. Dominic was actually a high school teacher who became a police officer, more for the financial reasons. The Port Authority is a great job, great benefits, great pay, and you get to serve two states. But he really wanted to be a teacher. But in the nine months leading up to September 11th, he understood what it meant to be part of the thin blue line, become a police officer. I always admired him. He was just a great guy. His students from the high school used to go to his house at night and ask him to come back to to be a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. He's got a new career. And we were walking back and Dominic said, Will, something bad must have really happened for them to call us all back off post at this time of the day. And I said, yeah. So we went back, started walking around the police desk. And our police desk, as you come around, when you walk in, you have the shoe officer, station house officer to the left. And our police desk sits high. And behind the police desk, I could see the sergeants and lieutenants. I'm a former Navy veteran. One of the things I learned while I was in the Navy best piece of advice that always stuck with me was by a senior or a sailor who said, if you ever have to go into a bad situation, follow somebody in that knows what they're doing because of the chances and the percentage of you coming out are much greater when you have a good leader. And that's something that's true today. And I share this with people that no matter what line of work you're in, as you go up the ladder, as you go up in rank, you don't owe it not only to yourself, but those that are under you, that you know your job, that you can give good direction. And one of those people that I always admired and looked up to was Sergeant John McLaughlin. I had worked with Sergeant McLaughlin over the nine months. He was someone that established himself as a good leader, as a good sergeant, and was always decisive in his decision-making, especially when we were in a bad altercation. So I just remember that saying, and I could see Sergeant McLaughlin's face, and I could see there was like a lot of stress in his face. There was a lot of concern, which caught my attention. But we continued on, and we went into what's called our reserve room, which is our break room. And as I came around the corner, we had a big TV set and there's a news channel in New York called New York One. I remember just looking at New York One on the television as they were reporting and they showed both towers. Tower One had a big black gaping hole with just smoke coming out of it. And that's when Sergeant Ross, who actually saw the plane, said, those are terrorists. Now, one of the things that sets the Port Authority police apart from the NYPD, as well as all our counterparts in New Jersey, the state police and other municipalities, is that we were bombed in 1993. All of our facilities, whether it's the airports, the bridges, the tunnels, the bus terminal, the World Trade Center, they're target-rich environments. So if you're a terrorist, if you're a bad guy and you want to cause a lot of pain and destruction, where are you going to go to? You're going to go to a lot of these facilities, including the New York subway. They're just targets. And we were already hit in 93. And the senior officers always would say they're going to come back to those towers because those towers represent the power of the United States financially and how good we were. And right away, Sergeant Ross said those are terrorists. So everything we were learning in academy was actually becoming reality, which was crazy. I turned around and went and grabbed the pay phone that we had at the time. And I picked up the phone because anytime there was an incident at the bus terminal, once things calmed down, I would call my wife, Allison, and let her know it was okay. So I ended up picking up the phone. I got through somehow that day because the, the phone lines were really tied up. And I got a hold of her. She was asking me what's going on. I said, I don't know. 
it looks like a plane has hit the World Trade Center. Don't have much information. We had mutual friends at the World Trade Center, the director of aviation, Bill Dakota, who has since passed, but it was a good friend of ours. And a friend of mine, Jeremy Jacobs, mom worked at the World Trade Center. So she was asking about them. And I'm like, I don't know, baby, you know, just getting the information now. That's when our inspector, Inspector Fields, came in the back and said, listen, we've commandeered a bus on Ninth Avenue. We're going to call off your names. When we call off your names, get on the bus. We're heading down to the Trade Center to help our brothers and sisters with the evacuation. So at that point, I just told Allison, I got to go. I hung up. She later told me, she goes, that's the first time in our six years of being married that you didn't say I love you. And I was just so concentrated on what we needed to do. Myself, Dominic Pizzullo, a senior officer, Michael Robles, ended up just not even waiting for our names to be called. We just followed Mikey, went down, got on the bus. I remember we got on the bus and Sergeant McLaughlin got in a police suburban next to us with the inspector and another sergeant, Sergeant Feely. We just started heading downtown. And for those in New York City, they understand. But if you're not from New York City, sometimes it takes a while to get from Midtown to downtown because of traffic or whatever. Well, that morning we were flying. We just flew and we hit the village. We're going on West Broadway. And the whole way down, again, you still don't outgrow high school. Guys are chit-chatting. They can't be terrorists. It's probably a small plane. And mind you, even back then in 2001, which for us that lived it seems like yesterday, but for most people, it might as well be Pearl Harbor. But in that year, there was still enough technology that an airliner would, would not accidentally fly into a building. Yeah. So we were kind of chit-chatting about that. And it was two city blocks back from Vessie Street when the bus went silent. We looked outside the window in the middle of the street. There was a gentleman that looked like he got hit by a piece of concrete because there was concrete that far back. And there was an FDNY ambulance working on him. And that's when everybody went silent. Like, this is real. Because now we were getting into the area. We went another block up and we stopped a block from Vesey Street on West Broadway and we started coming off the bus. There were firefighters, there were other Port Authority officers, NYPD officers, and we started a staging area right there. Our sergeant said, hold on, we're going to wait for orders. And as we're standing there, I'm looking up. And mind you, again, I'm 33 years old. I had served four years in the military and I was just, I was just taken back. I have no words. I mean, I'm looking up, there's papers floating everywhere. It's dust everywhere. I look at tower and there's the big black gaping hole. And then I looked at the second tower, tower two, and I could see the corner of on fire. So in my mind, I thought, okay, the plane hit, it blew up and some deflected and caught the second tower on fire, just the corner of it. What we didn't know was when we were in transit from midtown Manhattan to the trade center, the second plane had hit. So unbeknownst to us, there was a second huge hole on the other side. I could only see the corner of it on fire. And that's when one of our senior officers, Ronnie Delmar, said he was in the 93 bombing. He said, look, look, they're jumping. I remember just looking up and I saw people jumping. They were jumping by themselves, holding hands. It was horrible. They would jump and then they would disappear behind building six. And this just kept happening. And I remember thinking to myself here, all I ever wanted to do is a police officer. You know, I guess it's the macho in you. That's what I tell people is, you know, you can be as much as you want. The world's bigger than you'll ever be. We sometimes think we're bigger than we are and we're not. I felt like I was standing in front of the ocean. Here I am with our uniforms on, our, our shields, our gun belts, and I felt this big. I felt so small. And I remember every time someone jumped, I just felt like that was a pebble being thrown into a lake. You know, you get that ripple effect. Every time someone jumped, that was somebody's father, mother, brother, sister, the list goes on. And all I can think about is, man, we need to get up there, break a wall so they can see our uniforms to say, come on, follow us. It just felt helpless. And that's when Sergeant Glocken came running from Vesey Street. Now, mind you, from where we were, to Vesey Street and all of Vesey Street, there was nobody. It was a war zone. It was just 
debris, glass, paper, unfortunately, human remains. It was really, really bad. And here he comes running and he said, I need volunteers. I need guys that know how to use Scott Airpacks. As Port Authority police officers, we're the first responders at all our facilities. So we're cross-training not only law enforcement, but firefighting, of course, is medical. Sergeant Glock said, I need guys that know how to use Scott Airpacks. Scott Airpacks are the tanks you see firefighters wear with the oxygen mask. And at that point, I don't know who said it first, myself, Dominic Pizzullo, as well as another fellow officer, Antonio Rodriguez, who had four years on the NYPD, but came over to the Port Authority more for financial reasons for his family. All three of us said, hey, we know how to use them. We just graduated, so we know how to use them. So Sergeant McLaughlin said, okay, let's go. So we became a team of four, and we started running. This is something I tell everybody. I want people to, I hope, share this story. I'm going to talk. It's going to go through one ear, not the other. I hope something's captured in between that might help you down the line. And one of the things that I, I share, especially with young children, is where does courage come from? And courage comes from overcoming your fears. And I've got to tell you, again, 33 years old, former Navy veteran, had nine months of good activity at the bus terminal because Midtown Manhattan. But I was scared. I was scared. But then I also thought I took an oath to serve and protect. And that is something that I tell any young person who's going to be a first responder, no matter what field you go into, that when you take that oath, people are counting on you. And you can't just turn around and run the other way. And I remember being scared, but then I saw the fear in Dominic's face, Antonio's face, Sergeant McLaughlin, but we all had a job to do. So we forged forward. We went toward Vesey Street, entered the building to the side there. But before we went in, Sergeant McLaughlin said, Jimeno, take our hats, our PR-24s, which were our billy clubs at the time, and our memo books, and throw them in the police suburban, which I left on the corner of Church and Vesey. So I ran up there, threw the equipment in the passenger seat. That's when I realized the Suburban had taken a big piece of concrete that fell. That's when I said, hey, dummy, there's stuff falling from above. Because everything's happening so fast, so quickly that your mind's trying to catch up. Like, okay, I know there's a plane that hit the building, but your mind's not registering that there's concrete falling. So I had to get next to the building and ran back, went into the doorways off of Vesey Street, and we went in and came into what's called the concourse area. And I tell people, for those who have never been to the Trade Center, there were two large buildings that were connected by a mall level, which we call the concourse. In that mall level or concourse, there's stores, restaurants, there's the escalators that lead down to the path and the subway. So it, it was a very mall-like atmosphere, but then you had each way that you could lead to lobby of one, building one, and lobby of two. And you would have to go through these big glass revolving doors to get into the lobbies, to the elevator banks to take you up to each of the buildings. So when we entered, we got into what's called an E-room. E-rooms are set up throughout the World Trade Center. They're emergency rooms. They have all the equipment first responders need, God forbid, an emergency. Bunker coats, helmets, axes, lights, other equipment. When we got there, the guys started putting on their stuff. Dominic Pizzullo and I, we were kind of bigger guys, so there was no bunker coats left for us. So we just threw on helmets. We threw our Scott Air Packs on. Antonio had the bunker, so he looked like a firefighter. And before you know it, we looked like firefighters with guns on our sides. We double-checked each other, and we promised each other at that moment we would not leave each other at all. That's something we kept to. So at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, let's go. We're going down one level. We're going down to the police desk. So I had only been to the Trade Center maybe once or twice on protests. So I didn't know the buildings. Sergeant McLaughlin knew the buildings like the back of his hand because he had helped set up the uh, security after the 93 bomb. So I knew I was in good hands with Sergeant McLaughlin. We got on an elevator, went down one level, went to the police desk, went into the police desk. And again, your mind's just not like trying to register this. It's overwhelming. I knew a plane had hit the building, but our detectives actually brought in 
a piece of a plane into the police desk. And, you know, you're looking at this piece of the fuselage and you're like, why is this here? And one of the unique things that we found out later was there's French documentary that has footage from that day. They actually hooked up with our Port Authority police detectives and were at the police desk when we were there. You don't see us, but you see just Sergeant McLaughlin at that moment. You'll see him with his helmet and his jacket. We were actually there. At that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, all right, guys, grab a mail cart, a canvas mail cart, start loading more equipment. So we got more Scott Air Packs, axes, lights. And I started pushing this mail cart. We get back on the elevator, come back up into the concourse area, and we come out. And there was about two inches of water on the ground. As we started coming around the escalators that would lead you down to the path train and subway, we were heading toward the intersection where you could go to Tower 1 or make a left and go to Tower 2. As we came around there, one of the things I saw, and people ask me all the time, is, Will, what did you see the most of on September 11th? And I tell people, as crazy as it sounds, the one thing I saw the most of was a lot of work. I saw a steady flow of people coming from Tower 1 helping each other. And mind you, there are people who had passed. There were people who were injured. There were people yelling. There was still chaos, but there was this steady flow of people helping each other, total strangers. And I remember seeing a black gentleman with a white gentleman carrying a blonde woman who had a severe cut on her leg, and she was actually bleeding, but they were carrying her, one guy on either side. And they were following this steady flow of people to get them out of the building. I remember there was an FBI agent that we passed that was kind of guiding people. And when we came to that intersection, we bumped into another group of Port Authority police officers. There was five of them, just like, excuse me, there was five of them and there was four of us at the time. As we came around, my sergeant was talking to their sergeant. The person pushing that cart was Warren Stewart. He was actually a NYPD detective who had come over to the Port Authority and graduated with us as well on the 100th class. So I knew him and his nickname was Stewie. So me and Stewie were kind of just chit-chatting like, this is crazy. I don't understand what's going on. Stewart had just had his first little girl, Amanda, while we're in the academy in 2000. I believe it was uh, October, November, and he had his little girl. Her birth was a, a ray of sunshine for our academy class. So at that point, Sergeant Glockin said, let's go. Their team left. And that would be the last time I seen any of those officers. I wish I could remember the other four, but Warren Stewart was the one I remember. Unfortunately, we lost all of them, and they never recovered their bodies at all. But at that point, we started heading down this hallway when we encountered another Port Authority police officer, Christopher Amoroso. There's a famous picture of Christopher Amoroso where you see him helping a woman and another man helping this woman as well. And he actually has an injury over his left eye that was taken by a daily news photographer. Christopher had recently been transferred from the bus terminal in Midtown Manhattan, where we worked with him, to the World Trade Center, maybe three weeks prior, maybe a month. And so we knew Chris. So he walked up to us and asked the sergeant, can I join you guys? Sergeant McLaughlin said, yes. At that point, we all asked him, hey, Chris, are you all right? You're, you're injured. He goes, man, there's no time for that. We got to get more people out of here. He had already saved about four people before coming back into the building and hooking up with us. So at that point, we became a team of five. We ended up going toward Tower 2. And again, in my mind, as well as the rest of the guy's mind, Tower 1 was the only building hit. But we didn't know that 2 was in distress. Sergeant Glockin headed toward two. We stopped just before the revolving glass doors that you could go into the lobby of two. And Sergeant Glockin said, Jimeno, stay here with the cart. The rest of you guys come downstairs. We're going down to another emergency room, one level down to get more equipment. So the guys went down. I was standing there and I'm looking into the lobby of two. And it was complete chaos. I mean, I saw, again, people who had passed. I saw people injured. I saw people running out toward Liberty Street as best they could. 
and I could hear gunshots. Uh, our police officers were shooting out the windows to try to get more people out, to open up more areas for people to get out. And as I was standing there, I could hear these sounds. And the sound of concrete was very distinct as it kept coming down. But then, unfortunately, it was another sound. It was a sound of a human body coming down. I know, you know, today that a lot of people lost their lives as uh, bodies were coming down and hitting them as they were trying to escape out the Liberty Street. I got to tell you, it was, uh, it was tough hearing that sound of human bodies coming down. And that's when I was approached by another fellow officer from the Port Authority Police, Bruce Reynolds. Bruce Reynolds was an African-American. He was bald, short. Uh, and the only reason I knew him was I never met him. But growing up in Hackensack, New Jersey, 12 miles outside New York City, we have what's called the Bergen Record. It's the local newspaper. We have a command, the George Washington Bridge, that connects, of course, New York New Jersey. Unfortunately, people use the George Washington Bridge to sometimes take their lives. But there would always be articles on the Port Authority police officers that stopped people from taking their lives, helping them. And I remember seeing his picture in the Bergen Record. And uh, Bruce had a great reputation. He was the kind of cop that he would arrest you, but still buy you lunch. And his theory was, hey, <laughs> even if I could be kind to someone who's committing a crime, maybe that would be the catalyst to have them change their lives. But uh, he was a high drug interdiction guy. But so as he walked up to me, I kind of recognized him. I knew he had 15, 16 years on the job. He walked up to me, goes, hey, Reynolds, GWB, George Washington Bridge. I said, Jimeno, BT, bus terminal. And I remember him just saying, it's going to be a long day, kid, but we had a lot of people home. And I needed that. You know, I, I needed that encouragement. We talked a little bit. One funny fact about Bruce Reynolds, he was married to an Irish woman. I think he really wanted to be an Irish guy. Uh, but back then, he was the only black officer that would walk the St. Patty's Day Parade with his black head painted green. That's how much he loved the Irish. And, uh, and I would say, if you're a cop, doesn't matter where you're from or what color skin you are, we're all Irish, you know? So uh, he was an, a true example of that. As the rest of the team started coming up, Bruce said, hey, stay safe. And I said, you too. And that'd be the last time I saw Bruce Reynolds because I saw him walking over to the command center of Tower 2 where there were more firefighters, police officers. They ended up finding him, I believe, the following February. And right where I told them I last seen him, they, they found him. Uh, at that point, the guys load up more equipment, and Sergeant Glock said, okay, we're heading to Tower 1 now. So at that point, again, never questioning the sergeant. Didn't know what he was doing, but I realized he's getting more equipment. We load up, and that's when Antonio Rodriguez says to me, Will, you've been pushing the car from the police that's here. You're sweating. And again, we have our fire equipment on. We have our gun belts on. And there's just adrenaline, so we're sweating. And he says, let me push the car. Because if you're not in a good condition when we get to where we're going, you're not going to be any good. So I thought, hey, good teamwork, right? We rotate. So at that point, Antonio Rodriguez, A-Rod, as we call him, that was his nickname, A-Rod, started pushing the car. Christopher Amoroso was directly to his left. Sergeant McLaughlin was at the 11 o'clock position. I was directly in front at noon of the car. And Dominic was at the 1 o'clock. Now, we're going to leave Tower 2. And we're going to go down this long hallway and make a left to go to Tower 1. So as we started going down this hallway, halfway down this hallway, we bump into some firefighters and EMT. Sergeant Glockin's radio goes off. Sergeant Glockin says to him, hey, be careful. There's something wrong with possibly with Tower 2. Again, we don't know. At that point, the inspector asked for our whereabouts on the radio. Sergeant Glockin told him. And then he was asking, like, is there something wrong with Tower 2? We happen to stop. And it's a miracle in front of our doorway to our right. This doorway led to a freight elevator. Again, I did not know the building. And talk about miracles, because at that point, Sergeant Glock is on the radio talking to Inspector Fields. We hear a humongous boom from where we just walked from. So I turn around, and I'm looking back, and I could look inside the lobby of two, 
And all I see is a fireball. I mean, the size of my house. And I'm standing there. And I grab my helmet because it was like out of a movie. Everything is shaking. I look up, the ceiling shaking, glasses breaking. And I don't know what to do. And I go back to that point. Follow somebody that knows what they're doing into a bad situation because your chances of getting out are much greater. At that point, Sergeant McLaughlin saw something that I didn't. What happened was it was the building coming down, the first building coming down. And as that building's coming down, it's actually bringing a wall of debris toward us. So in Sergeant McLaughlin's training, is what does he think is happening? He thinks it's a car bomb like they do in the Middle East where they blow something up, kill people, let the first responders come in, kill them again. So Sergeant Glocken just out of nowhere says, run, run toward the elevator. So at that point, Dominic closest to the doorway leading to the elevator starts running that way. I start running behind Dominic. I could look behind my shoulder and I could see Sergeant Glocken. We hit this hallway. And that's the first time I asked myself, Will, what did you get yourself into? Because as I'm running, I could see the lights flickering and I could see brown stuff. Of course, today I know it's the building coming down. I didn't know that. And for a split second, I thought I saw light, you know, and it's funny how your mind works. And I'm thinking to myself, run toward the lights or safety. But then I remembered we promised we wouldn't leave each other. And I was watching Dominic starting to turn to the left. So I started turning to the left. And there was whatever I saw didn't mean anything. We were between both towers. Dominic started turning to the left. I started following him. That's when something big picked me up, threw me on my back. I ended up in a 45 degree angle. And next thing you know, we're just getting bombarded with debris, concrete. It sounded like, honestly, a million freight trains coming down. Police officer will tell you that our first line of defense is going to be our, our communications, our radios. So I went for my radio, which was on my left lapel. I had a mic. I went and grabbed my left hand. I started yelling, 813, 813, officers down, which is our code for just everybody come. We're in trouble. And I must have yelled that three, four times. I'm saying we're at the World Trade Center. Please help. We're getting bombarded with concrete. Something hit my hand. I lost my radio. At that point, all I can do was grab my helmet and hold on for dear life. It's very hard for me to describe how powerful, painful it was, but something hit my helmet. I had a chin strap on it, ripped my helmet right off. So now I'm holding on for dear life with both my hands. And it seemed like as fast as it came down, everything just went silent when we were in the dark. And I didn't know what was going on. It took a little bit, but there was a hole about 20 to 30 feet above me to my right side. And it started allowing light to come in. And everything was really hazy and gray, but I was having light. So I can kind of see. And when I finally could see, what I found myself in was literally a small void, a cavern. And I had about 18 inches above my face, and it was concrete. To my right, there was maybe two to three feet of room. To my left, I could see Dominic Pizzullo buried in a push-up position down right next to me to my left on my waist side. And then toward my feet, all I could see was concrete. And that's when I realized I had a lot of concrete on my left side coming in from my left armpit all the way down my middle of my chest, bearing all the way down my left foot. My right leg was in a 90-degree angle, but my foot was stuck in concrete. I was in shock at that point. I really didn't know what was going on. It took a couple minutes. Sergeant McLaughlin now is down by my feet on the other side of this concrete that I could see. And he was actually stuck when the initial collapse. He's actually in a fetal position, but he's stuck. He's not hurt. That's when he said, sound off. I said, Jimeno. Dominic said, Pizzullo. And that's all we heard. For the next several minutes, I kept yelling, Chris, A-Rod, Chris, A-Rod. And that's when Dominic said, Willie, they're in a better place. And that's when we realized we had just lost two fellow officers, you know, two fathers, 
to Americans. And that was that was difficult. But Sergeant Lachlan being the professional, he said, what is everybody's condition? That's when the pain started setting in. I think the shock was wearing off on me. And it felt like 100 Chevy Suburbans on my left side. I said, I can't move. I'm stuck. And I'm in a lot of pain. At that point, all I had exposed was my initial set of handcuffs on my front waist, on my right side, my sidearm. And that was it. Everything else, I lost my radio, couldn't get to my flashlight. All I had really was usage of my right arm and partially of my left arm because I couldn't move too much because the concrete was on. Dominic said, hey, I'm okay, but I'm buried. So basically what happened is what we know today is literally a wall fell on me, missing Dominic at the bottom, but burying him in just debris. So Sergeant McLaughlin at that point said, we'll try to get out and see if you get Jimeno out and then you two guys get me out. So it took a little bit, but Dominic had to shimmy out of his Scott air pack and literally had to crawl over my face into this little area next to me where he was able to kind of crouch down. So when he finally got there, you know, he looked up and he saw the hole. And this is something I try to tell people. If you're not in the services or military, law enforcement, and even if you are, we're human beings. So your first reaction usually is, uh, I want to save myself. And Dominic said, Sarge, I can go up this hole and go get help. Sergeant Glock said, no, you got to get Jimeno out because it's probably a debris field up there and you'll never find us. Because you have to get Jimeno out and you and Jimeno get me out. But again, if you're just a regular human being who didn't take a job like that, or even if you do, you realize that our human instinct is survival. And Dominic said, Sarge, you know, I can go out and get help. He goes, no. And at that point, we had kind of a heavy conversation. Dom said, you know, Will, I got two kids at home. I said, bro, I, I got a little girl at home and one on the way. And after a little discussion, he did what I felt was the right thing. And he said, I'm going to get you out. So he started. And Dominic was a strong individual. You know, he was in shape with the weight. And there was a piece of rebar wrapped around my right side with a piece of concrete at the end. And he was trying to pull this off. And it would whip back and literally hit me and beat me up. And for the next 10 to 15 minutes, I mean, he literally beat me up. And Believe it or not, we, we actually laughed because I was like, bro, you're real with some colorful words. I said, you're really kicking my butt. And we laughed. And I think we just needed that as human beings, like just that laughter, just kind of relieved some of the pressure that we were under because we really knew that we we're in a life and death situation. But after the 10, 15 minutes, I remember him kind of sitting back down and he's just like, Willie, I can't kick you out. And I remember this fear coming over, like, wow, this is bad. That I'm going to kick you and that's when we heard another boom again. Dominic kind of crouched up and stood up, and it just happened again. It, it felt like a million freight trains coming down. Now Tower 1 is coming down. More stuff's coming in. At that point, I realized we're going to die. Something I always did my wife and my, and my little girl, Bianca, is do the I love you sign in sign language. So I took both my hands, made I love you signs, crossed them over my chest, because I figured if they found me, I hoped I would tell my wife, Allison, this is how we found them. Because <laughs> know that... At that moment's when I thought of my family. I never thought of my family up to that point because it always was about the rescue of helping people get home, then about our team. Then that's when it was like thinking about my family. And, you know, that was my job. My job was to help people. Our job was to help people. That's something I'm proud of, that as law enforcement officers, firefighters, EMTs, we put our lives out there to help other people get home. And that's just in us, I think. You know, there's no description of that, except that's what we're born with. My dad would always get mad at me. Why do you want to help people? And the only answer is because it's in me. That's just the way it is. And not in a bad way. My dad would always help people, but he just thought like, man, you really put yourself out there. And I'm like, well, dad, it's, it's not me. Ooh, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. So 
I remember hearing Sergeant McLaughlin now yelling more because at this point he's actually being crushed in the fetal position to the point that you know his weapon was actually being embedded into his body. That's when I looked over and I could see Dominic and something hit him, came into this little void, sat him down really severely, injured him. Again, everything seemed like it was happening forever and then it just stopped. I was in more pain. Sergeant McLaughlin was yelling really, really bad. And I look over and I see Dominic and he's trying to say something and he's coughing up blood. That's when I realized he had taken a really, really bad hit and bad internal injuries. It almost stopped my pain because I'm looking at him and he says, really, I'm dying. And I just kept saying, Dom, hold on, hold on. He goes, no, I'm dying. He asked the sergeant for a break, a 3-8, which is our code. Sergeant McLaughlin actually stopped yelling and said, yeah, you can have a 3-8. Because he didn't know what was happening, but he could hear the severity of what was happening. Dominic said, Willie, I love you. I said, Dominic, I love you. He said, don't ever forget I died trying to save you guys. I said, don't <sighs> anybody forget. And at that point, he took out his sidearm and he pointed it up into that hole that was about 30 feet up. And he fired around in a last-ditch effort to let somebody know we were down there. And he slumped over and he passed. And that was, that was very difficult. That was uh, very bad. I started yelling hysterically, Sarge, Dom's gone, Dom's gone. Sergeant McLaughlin, being the true professional leader, said, you need to focus. He understood the situation, but he said, you need to focus. If we use our energy, we'll die. You need to reserve your energy. And I cannot express to everybody who's listening to this how exhausting and draining it was at, up to that point. We were only in shortly after the second tower. Our bodies were just beat up and in bad shape. At that point, Sergeant Glockin just asked me, what can you do? I said, I can't do much. All I could do is look like I got a big mouth. I'm yelling. I really couldn't move. He said, we just got to keep trying to communicate with people. He was yelling a lot. I was yelling a lot. And I asked him, I said, Sarge, what's next? You know, what do we do? And he said, Jimeno, there is no training ever, ever made for this. This is basically going to come down to us. And that's why I always tell people it's not my story. It's a human story. I want people to understand that. It's in you. You don't have to be a police officer, a military person, a Navy SEAL, anything of that to make it through the tough times in life. It's in you and you have to find it. At that moment, we needed to find how to survive. And it meant second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. I continued yelling. As time progressed, things got a little worse because these fireballs started falling into this hole. Uh, being former Navy and on a ship that carried helicopters, I knew what jet fuel was. I knew what jet fuel can do. And these balls were falling in and they were full of jet fuel. And one of the things I always said, I respect firefighters, never want to be one. I feel more comfortable around five, six bad guys than I do fire. These fireballs are coming in. Now, just imagine you're scared of fire. You can't move and they're encroaching on you. It started burning my right arm. I said, Sarge, I'm going to burn alive, which was just a horror for me. He said, try to keep putting them out. Try to put them out. I don't know how or why they got put out, but I kept throwing dirt on them. Somehow, some way, they would fall in, start rolling toward me. They'd put themselves out. People later told me there was kind of like a, a wind or, if you will, of some, some, some sort coming from the bottom of the trade center. I don't know if that helped or not, but I surely didn't feel it because the heat was immense in this little void room. And uh, they would put themselves out. And then eventually I hear pow, 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 pow. And I'm looking above me. And I see sparks. When I look over, Dominic's weapon is going off. I don't know if it's from the heat or what, but it fired and was actually pointing in my direction. I'm yelling, Sarge, I'm getting shot at. The remaining rounds and his weapon discharged right above my head. All I could do was take my hand and cover my face, hoping that if a bullet hit me, it would stop it. But I knew that. 
mean, somehow, some way, I was still alive after the weapon discharge. And I got to tell you, I was very, very hysterical at that point. Sergeant Glockin had to calm me down. From that point on, it really was hours and hours of pain, suffering. And later in the evening, I started asking Sergeant Glockin, what's going to happen to us? Our body started to swell. I finally was able to use my handcuffs, but I would like move so slow that I would hit and I would take like 10, 15 minutes to regain strength to do it again. And maybe I did that two, three times with the handcuffs, put them down to rest, couldn't find them again. Finally, I was able to take out the magazine from my weapon uh, because I couldn't dislodge the weapon. I was so weak that I used the magazine that holds the bullets to kind of use as a little hammer, put them down to rest. I couldn't find it. Later, I finally was able to walk my weapon out. Unfortunately, the weapons we carried at the time, if you put the magazine out, the weapon wouldn't fire. It was a safety device that we had on the weapon. So the weapon, I couldn't fire. It became a hammer. I would hit it two, three times, have to take a rest, put the weapon down, couldn't find it. They later found all that equipment right where it was. But my hands had swelled up like the Michelin man, where I couldn't feel anything. Everything felt like the same. I remember just trying my best to try to free myself, but to no avail. And as the night progressed, I remember just, again, asking Sergeant Glockman what's happening. He goes, we're suffering from compartment syndrome. Basically, if they don't get to us by the morning, we're probably going to die. And that was hard to hear. But at the same time, I appreciated his honesty. So I knew where we were. And as the night progressed at one point, and this is, in my opinion, the most important part of my survival was that I wanted to die. I wanted to give up. We had been crushed, lost three teammates. I've been burnt, I've been shot at. I just wanted to die. And I made my peace with God. I'm Catholic. I don't preach religion. That's just me. I said, God, thank you for 33 great years. Thank you for six years with my wife, four years with my little girl, Bianca. Thank you to my parents who brought me to this great country because I was originally born in Colombia, South America, came here when I was two. Thank you for allowing me to reach my dream to be a police officer. But if I die today, I'm going to die proud as an American, as a police officer trying to do the right thing. And I said, God, I'm going to ask you for two things. One is to allow me to see my little girl be born because I knew it was going to just rip apart Allison to know that I wasn't there for the birth of my little girl. And second, and I always tell people you can laugh at this, but I said, God, when we get to heaven, because I felt that everybody that day was going to heaven because we were attacked by what I call cowards, these terrorists, innocent people just doing hard work for their families to make better lives. For them. And I felt everybody was going to heaven that day. And I said, God, when we get to heaven, all I want is a glass of water. Because we were concrete. <laughs> we were just so caked in concrete. I was so thirsty. And I closed my eyes. And I tell people, you can call it whatever you want, a vision, a dream, whatever. I see a person walking toward me with a glowing white robe, no face, brown hair. And I know who that was. To me, it was Jesus. Over his left shoulder in the distance was a pond with tranquil trees. Over his right shoulder was a tall, endless sea of grass. And a peace came over me. I didn't feel the pain anymore. It was like I was okay. I tell people you can laugh at this. And as he's walking toward me, what does he have in his hand? He had a bottle of water. I can't tell you if it was Poland Spring, <laughs> but I snapped out of that vision, dream, whatever you want to call it, with a fire in my belly. And I had said some colorful words to the sergeant. I said, Sarge, we're going to get out of this hellhole or we're going to die trying. Because at that point, I realized that if I had given up, I would have given up on my sergeant because nobody could hear him. I had the bigger mouth and I was closer to the hole. I would have given up on my family because I didn't fight hard enough to get home. I would have given up on my country. But most of all, I would have given up on myself. And I cannot express to you the peace that came over me knowing me that if I'm going to die, I'm going to give it everything I got. And I can go in peace saying, I did the best I could. I couldn't lie to myself. 
And we fought for the next several hours. Just horror. That's the only thing I can say. Take your worst nightmare, multiply it by a million. That might get you somewhere where we were in this void. And at eight o'clock that night, I hear in the distance, United States Marine Corps. Can anybody hear us? I want to ask you what that moment was like when you heard United States Marine Corps. Well, at first I thought I was hallucinating, to be honest with you. Because at this point, it's around eight o'clock that night. We were buried for quite a long few hours there. And I thought I was hallucinating, but then I heard it again. So I started yelling out, PAPD officers down, PAPD officers down. Now, mind you, where we were, we were in the epicenter. We were between both towers where they fell. We were smack in the middle. We later found out that nobody was allowed in because, of course, they were afraid more injuries. These two Marine reservists and a civilian broke through the lines and were scaling beams to try to find people. They ended up coming toward my left side where I didn't know was a small little hole and they were shining a flashlight down. When they got there, I said, please don't leave us. Port Authority police officers, uh, my sergeant and I are injured bad. We have men down. They said, we're not going to leave you. They sent the civilian down the pile to go look for help. He ended up bumping into NYPD ESU truck one, started bringing them. In the meanwhile, you know, they were still trying to find me. I had the use of my left hand a little bit and this light was shining down and it was on on my hand. And it was very frustrating because it must have been a good three to four minutes and they couldn't see me, but the light was on me. And again, I, we were like concrete. We became part of the building. Somehow, some way I mustered enough spit to put on the top of my left palm. And he finally saw me. He saw the hands. He goes, we got you. Ugh. I just couldn't believe. But at that point, it was happiness, but fear at the same time. Because, okay, they found us, but how much longer can we hold on? Because we were really injured bad. After a little bit, NYPD got there. The Marines stayed above me where I can hear them. I didn't know, but they had to go to my right side and burrow in like groundhogs. And they came in through the right side, that little area. All I could see was two bald heads. It was Scott Strauss from NYPD ESU 1 and a civilian that came off the street that was wow. a medic who said, I can render medical aid. These two bald heads were chest to chest because this compartment was so tight. They could barely get in there. And behind them was Patty McGee, another ESU-1 truck officer. And basically what they started doing was passing concrete toward Patty, who was where the elevator shaft broke. And in retrospect, what basically happened was that elevator shaft that our sergeant led us to literally broke and covered me and my sergeant, Dominic. So just imagine in a building falling down, this was like a toothpick that was over us, but it was strong enough to still not stop injury, but it would bounce most of the concrete off. That's we what we were in, literally a small void. And when I'm talking tiny in the scheme of things, it was tiny. So another miracle. So at that point, they came in and these men, I cannot express their courage and what they put up with. Because somehow during the course of the night, my sergeant and me, we became part of the building. We could breathe. We weren't choking. In the beginning, we were choking. But then somehow, some way, our bodies kind of conformed to the environment. These guys were, were dying of smoke inhalation. They would take my Scott Air Pack and take whiffs of it. They were suffering. For three hours, these men suffered. For three hours, they were told to leave us. And they said, no, that we're not leaving them. And I remember saying to Scott, are you going to leave? And he goes, no, we're not leaving. They finally yelled up because we had an encroaching fire coming that they were fighting above us. And they were ordered out and they're like, no, we'll die with these guys. We're not leaving them. Amazing. And it took three hours and uh, halfway through this rescue, 
because I kept saying when they first got to me, can you get to my partner? Can you get to my partner? The whole time they thought who I was talking about, unfortunately, who passed right next to me was Dominic. They had covered him up and they didn't want to tell me he was dead because they're thinking, hey, this guy doesn't know he's dead. But again, you're exhausted, you're injured, you're not thinking right. So I just kept saying my, my partner, I didn't say my sergeant. And finally, halfway through that, you hear a voice because from the get-go, the guys got there, Sergeant Glock, and even though in pain, just went quiet. And finally says, how's it going? And these guys freaked out, like, who's that? I said, that's my partner. I said, that's Sergeant McLaughlin. And one of the things about law enforcement is we interact with each other, different departments. And even though we might not know each other, we know we're, we're a family of blue. Sergeant McLaughlin, being a former ESU officer for the Port Authority, cross-trained with the NYPD with repelling down the elevator shafts. So Patty McGee and Scott Strauss knew John McLaughlin. So that gave me an extra like, wow, okay, these guys know him. That was encouraging. Uh, And they couldn't believe it. And I said, yeah, he's buried back further. And Scott said, hold on, John. You know, they knew each other. At one point, I just told him, cut my left leg out. They couldn't get my left leg out. And I said, just cut my left leg out. They had doctors standing by up there to cut our legs off. And Scott said, no, we're going to get you out here whole. And he did. It took three hours, a lot of painstaking, life-saving stuff going on. They finally were able to pull my leg out. They put me on a, on a stretcher and they brought me up. Uh, as I left the hole, I remember just saying to Sergeant Glock, hold on, Sarge. When they pulled me out, that's the first time I cried that night. I mean, I looked up, I could see the moon, I could see a lot of smoke, but I didn't see the buildings. And I said, where is everything? And the firefighter said, it's all gone today. And that's the first mm-hmm. time I cried. I didn't cry when we were injured, when the guys died throughout the evening, it pained me because I knew how many people I still saw in that in the lobby of two. And I just felt like we failed. And I remember them starting to pass me down this long line. I remember just grabbing patches with my right arm and thanking them. You know, Port Authority, NYPD, FDNY, New Jersey departments. They led me down this long line to the ambulance. The ambulance took me to Bellevue Hospital. I guess I was there about quarter to 12, midnight, because I came out about 11. And I remember they started bringing me off the ambulance. And that's the second time I cried because I said, where is everybody? I see these doctors and nurses standing around. They're like, you're it. I'm like, it just didn't register. Like, how yeah. could it be? Because, again, we never knew the towers fell. The whole time, we never knew. So they whisked me into surgery. I was told I flatlined twice. I woke up, couldn't talk for days. They had a tube down my throat and you could see rocks coming out of my lungs. The most frustrating part there was I didn't really care if I lived or died. I wanted to be able to communicate as to what I saw. I wanted to tell them about Dominic, Antonio, Chris. I wanted to tell them what I saw because I thought it was important to those families to know what their loved ones were doing. Luckily for me, I did live. It was a long road to recovery. Sergeant McLaughlin came out at 7 a.m. that morning. We didn't know to the following year that we're the only two to survive from under it. You know, there was about 19, 20 people that survived. Most of them got out, you know, 13 in the stairwell. Dave Lim, one of our Port Authority police officers, K-9, was with Jay Jonas and his crew, as well as the civilian from the Port Authority. There was a couple others that got out, I think, from the Marriott. And then Mrs. Guzman, who was actually the last person pulled out, they found her noon the next day. But we were the only two to survive from under it, which is a miracle. And I think it's also a sign of the human spirit, the American spirit, that you know, one of the things that I know that uh, they had flown the 19th hijacker around the Trade Center. And he said, I hope they all died. And the New York State trooper said, no, they didn't. He knew our story. And he said, you're not killing us. And, you know, I'm proud of that. It was difficult to hear that we're the only two to survive from under it because you were hoping there were more people in voids like we were. Scott Strauss, Patty McGee said, you know, we searched for three weeks after. 
hoping we would find people like you guys. Scott always says, you know, you and John are our light for that dark day. I just feel that this story that I'm sharing with you is one to show people that when they're dark skies, I always, you know, like the book says, you know, when you find yourself in darkness, you know, there is a way to get out of the darkness and you have to keep going forward. And that's difficult when you're in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. And I wrote the book because what I just shared with you in the book, but what I really expand on is my recovery, you know, because not only did I have to learn how to walk again, I had to learn how to be a good, a good dad, a good husband. You know, I didn't realize that post-traumatic stress was affecting me the way it was. I was angry. I was angry that what happened that day to all the people we lost, the people injured, to my teammates. Uh, you know, we lost 37 Port Authority police officers, the most law enforcement officers lost in one day, followed by 23 NYPD officers, you know, our fellow officers, uh, 343 firefighters and countless civilians. And that really weighed on me. It weighed on me. You know, so this book, Sunrise Through the Darkness, is one that I share my my road to recovery, which was very, very difficult. You know, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder or any other darkness, which could include addiction to alcohol, uh, drugs, sexual addictions, child abuse, rape, you know, that's what I just call darkness. And you have it within you to overcome these darknesses. And I shouldn't use the word overcome, but you learn how to live with it. Right. For me, post-traumatic stress disorder is something that I'll get rid of the day they bury me. A person who has been raped, they get rid of that the day they bury them. But you can learn to live with these darknesses and be able to overcome them and live a fruitful life. And that's what I share in this book because I got together with my friend, Dr. Michael Motes, who's a psychologist, a doctor of psychology. And I had said, you know, Mike, can we write a book where I tell my story and you can come in and sprinkle some advice that doesn't bore people? Because for me, the first therapists, although good people, weren't really helping me. And I would say therapists are like car salesmen. You know, you're going to find the right one. Some of them are just going to turn you off. And that's just the reality of it. Sometimes you just need to find that person you you connect with. And that gives you good advice. For me was a, a therapist, Debbie Mandel. Unfortunately, we lost Debbie in 9-11 illness. She actually would visit me at midnights while I was at Bellevue Hospital. And she would talk to the police officer. She ended up contracting some bad stuff, 9-11 illness. But when she helped me, was basically telling me, you're going to have to learn from the problems. You're going to have to learn how to channel that anger. And I slowly, with the help of my wife, started doing that because I realized the night that I really made the decision to seek help and become a better person is the night that I almost threw a shoe on my wife. I've never lifted my hand to a woman, but the PTSD was building up and I couldn't find the remote. And they weren't moving fast enough. And I literally was picking up a shoe and I was going to throw it out. And I caught myself like, this is not who you are. This is not Wilhelmino. I don't know who this is. And I was embarrassed. I got in my truck. This is like a year and a half later. And I drove up to the country and I sat and I thought about it. And I said, you know what? These cowards, these terrorists, through me will affect another generation. Because as we all know, if you have someone in your family who, who drinks, does drugs, abuses, a lot of times those people that are seeing this and being affected by this become those people. Right. And I said, no. I cannot be a bad father, a bad husband, because these terrorists then will reach out and touch another generation of Americans. And, and I wasn't going to allow that to happen. So I started my journey on bettering myself, being able to overcome PTSD in a way that I can control it. It doesn't control me. I was so struck a lot by the fact that I think I expected the book to be all about that day. And really only the beginning is about that day. And the book is really about your recovery from PTSD, which... I found to be very amazing. 
But what I really loved, and Sarah and I were talking about this yesterday, was that you really have found that through helping people, you are helped. And by reaching out and helping others, which I thought was really beautiful. Absolutely. Like you're helping yourself with your own PTSD by helping other people with it as well. Right. By reaching others, by helping them through the book, through speaking engagements, by passing on your experience. And I love that you're relating it to all kinds of trauma, because I think that's very true, that these traumas that other people can relate just because you weren't in 9-11, that it's in through reading the book, I could relate it to different experiences I've had, even though obviously I wasn't I didn't go through that, but it is very relatable. And I love the way you, everybody should get this book because I think we've all had experiences we can reflect on and you do those reflections on the chapters, which I found very helpful. Yeah. that's, you know, the help of Dr. Michael Moltz. I always say I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I have good intentions. My wife is the one that said what you just said. And uh, my wife said, it. she goes, you know, you don't realize this, but by you speaking, it helps other people. To be honest with you, leading up to speaking engagements, I don't want to talk about it. You know, I, 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 feel like I don't want to go through this again. But then afterwards, when people line up, I never leave a speaking engagement without people coming up to me and wanting to talk to me. And they've shared so many different stories that I just can't even cover them all. That things, again, like things that I never realized how I and it's the human aspect of it. And this is something that's very important. Uh, tragedies are not competitive. What I mean by that and something that was taught to me by Dr. Michael Motes is that, you know, people will walk up to me and say, well, I can't think of anything worse than 220 stories falling on, on you. And I'm like, well, let's look at that. You just found out you got cancer. You just lost a loved one. It could be down to a student that says, I don't think I can overcome this midterm. Everybody that when something bad happens in your life or you're challenged, it might as well be the World Trade Center falling on you. It's what we do with ourselves. If you're listening to this, don't ever think that someone else's story is more important than yours. What's happening in your life at that moment is important and you should treat it as such. It's what you do with yourself. So it's very important that people understand when I write this book, I'm talking to you that I've been there. I wasn't sure what PTSD was. I felt alone. I felt scared. I felt lost. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to overcome it. These are human traits that we all can relate to. And going back to your point where people think, oh, this book is just about 9-11. Look at, let's just take soldiers. You know, we watch these cool movies on Navy SEALs. We don't know what these SEALs are suffering with at home afterwards, what they had to do, what they had seen, what the loss of a, mm -hmm. a counterpart is. You know, people who have a car accident, you see someone who has a car accident. Well, I guarantee you they're in for a long road. You don't know months later. People kind of look at the event, but don't realize the after effect it has. And it's very important for people to understand that at that moment, everybody focuses, but what happens after? Look at the war in Ukraine. Americans aren't talking about it anymore as they, as they were in the beginning. And there are people suffering there, and there are people going to be suffering for a long time. So if something happens in your life that's tragic, understand, yes, that tragedy is right there, but there's a long road. And remember that I think the most important thing is in a tragedy, you have to find some light. Because if you don't find light out of a tragedy, it's just out of tragedy. And that's where the sin comes in. For me, 20 years later, going on 21 this year, uh, for me is to educate the young generation as to not what the cowards did that day, the evil they did, but to focus on the good of that day, how people came together, how Absolutely. it didn't matter when I was found what color you were, 
what political stance you had, who you love. All I cared about was to get to my family. And September 11th is something that I don't know how to recreate that. Unfortunately, the only way you recreate that was, is with horror, where people start, start dropping their agendas and start realizing we're human beings. We need to come together. Because on September 11th, which has brought us, unified us, uh, you know, I feel it's something that that spirit is something we could use today here in the United States. That, Absolutely. And, and, but it's proven. I always say, don't look at the news all the time. They want to say we're divided. But there's a car accident right now. People stop to help. If there's shootings, people step forward to help. And, and I will understand that. This has just been such an honor. And I, I wanted to quote something from the book to conclude this, but this has just been really a powerful, so powerful. I, I just, your book really was beautiful. We're going to post, but I was looking and yesterday at the pictures of you being pulled out and I'm going to post those pictures because it's, the imagery is very powerful and I think really brings home to those people who don't recall that day or who are younger, the situation you were in. But. Absolutely. And I just, I'm just pulling a quote that you say in the book and it says, in my heart, I believe there are good men and women who will never stand by and let evil win. When I speak of evil, I'm using this term as meaning anything that holds us back from living the lives we seek. That's beautiful. I just think it's amazing that you took such a horrible situation and turned it into such good and are continuing on that road to spreading the word and doing good and, and carrying and, this message. And thinking not of self, but of other people. Yeah. I think that is really reflects in your book. And I really admire that. And it is, it's inspiring. Very Absolutely inspiring. inspiring. Well, Absolutely. I, I want to thank you. And I just want to say that part of it is me, but a lot is the people who came up and shared their stories with me, especially a young Marine that really was the catalyst who wrote the forward of my book. He was the one that really kind of opened my eyes as to what you're saying helps others. He was dealing with PTSD. Uh, he was in a bad place. And he said, your words helped me live a fruitful life. And that's why I did the book. So I can't take all the credit. And I guess what I'm saying is that it takes all of us to help each other. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Will. Yeah, and you know, well, thank you to all the men and women and first responders and law enforcement out there who, who take that oath. And God bless every first responder out there. Police officer, firefighter, EMT. Um, Absolutely. Without you, we really would have chaos. And you are the line. And we need you. And uh, we love you and we respect you no matter what they want to tell you. Anytime someone's in trouble, they call 911, whether it's a fire <laughs> or law enforcement. We'll always be there because that's who we are. Absolutely. Thanks again, Well. It's been such an honor. Thank you, ladies. And again, uh, thank you to anybody who reads the book, Sunrise Through the Darkness. You can get it, of course, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and leave a good review because if it helps you, someone will read that review and realize that, you know, maybe it's worth the time to pick it up on Kindle or Absolutely. read it. And, and I just want to help other people. That's all I want to do. And I appreciate your time. Murder, murder.